Thanks everyone for coming or uh, watching online if you're watching online. I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies here at, at Cato. Uh, we're here today to talk about uh, the Newberg Sting, uh, which is a documentary about a counterterrorism case in, in New York that aired last year on HBO and about cases like it uh, and about their implications for uh, U.S. counterterrorism and homeland security policy. Uh, most films make theater out of reality. I think this film makes theater, uh, this film, excuse me, makes reality out of theater. Um, it examines a theatrical production of the United States government, uh, which told a story where the authorities stopped a, a nefarious Al-Qaeda-inspired cell intent on bombing a synagogue and attacking a military base in New York. Uh, and as we'll see, uh, the truth uh, revealed in the film is a little bit different. Uh, I don't want to uh, spoil it, but uh, these guys uh, were never going to blow anything up without government help. Um, we unfortunately don't have time to watch uh, the whole movie, uh, but you really ought to, uh, especially if, if you're not uh, inclined, if you're disinclined to agree with what you're going to hear today. And apparently you can watch HBO for free presently uh, on your Apple device through some sort of promotion. So I'm not getting paid to say that, but uh, you can watch the movie, I think, for free on your Apple devices this week, or you can just pay for HBO and watch it like the rest of us. Um, but I, I predict that uh, even if you're not uh, a libertarian uh, or a civil libertarian ACLU supporter or a soft-hearted anti-incarceration type, you might still be outraged uh, by uh, what's going on uh, in this movie. Um, so, uh, particularly if you disagree with what, what you're going to hear, you, uh, I think you ought to watch it. Um, and the, the case is important because it, it's not uncommon. Uh, many uh, cases or plots we've seen uh, in the news since 9-11, certainly not all, but many, uh, have this sort of theatrical quality where once you sort of peel back the official story a little bit, you find something much uh, more pathetic on the... Uh, terrorism side on the terrorist side and more uh, created on the government side than uh, it initially seems. And, and Trevor Aronson's uh, book from a couple years ago, uh, The Terror Factory, goes into a lot of these uh, cases. Uh, it's a good, uh, good place to read about this if you're interested. Um, and the, the cases raise, uh, they raise questions certainly of uh, justice or injustice but also uh, questions of uh, policy wisdom, uh, such as to what extent are the uh, lone wolves, the lone wolves that we're supposed to be worried about, the lone wolves who were inspired by Al-Qaeda and, and uh, or maybe now ISIS and can create mayhem in the United States, to what extent are they really uh, what uh, terrorism expert Max Abrams calls loon wolves, loon wolves, loony wolves who uh, can't really get their act together to do much of anything, let alone set off simultaneous bombs. And if um, a lot of them are of that ilk. Uh, is it really a good use of taxpayer money? Are they, you know, if the FBI were here, and I wish they were, or a spokesperson, uh, would, as they say, well, wouldn't this just be a sort of prophylactic policing method to uh, take care of the problem be before they connect with uh, more capable actors who will allow them to commit uh, acts of terrorism, or um, might they never amount to anything uh, at all, and uh, might this just sort of be a waste of money and uh, the FBI's effort? I mean, what else might the FBI be doing with its time, if not this? Maybe something 
uh, more productive. And I think maybe even more importantly, are, are we creating a, a fear of the thing that we're supposed to be combating? And might that creation of fear uh, have uh, consequences well beyond the cost and even the injustice in these particular cases for our polity and for our public policy. Uh, so those are, are questions hopefully we'll speak to or the, the panelists will speak to. And uh, with that, I'll introduce them in the order uh, they all they are to speak. Uh, first uh, is uh, David Hilbrunner, who produced and directed the Newberg Sting, along with his wife, Kate Davis. And they've made a, a number of documentaries together, including uh, the Stonewall Uprising from 2010, which won a Peabody, and uh, Jockey. Uh, from 2004, which won an Emmy. David's been working in uh, television and uh, documentary film since the 90s, and before that he was a Manhattan prosecutor, an experience that's the subject of his book, uh, Rough Justice, and he's written widely on law and crime. Second, we have Noreen Shaw, who's the director of Amnesty International USA's Security and Human Rights Program, correct? Uh, where she writes about U.S. counterterrorism policy issues, including surveillance, drone strikes, and domestic policing, and their impact on American Muslim communities. Uh, she's one of the authors of The Illusion of Justice, uh, Human Rights Abuses in U.S. Terrorism Prosecutions Report uh, that's uh, on sale. I think it's on sale or else it's free uh, outside. Um, and uh, previously, she was legislative counsel at the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office an associate director of the Counterterrorism and Human Rights Project at Columbia Law, at Columbia Law, at its Human Rights Institute, and where she's a graduate of that law school as well. Finally, uh, we have John Mueller, uh, who's a senior fellow here at Cato, uh, and a member of the Political Science Department in, uh, at Ohio State, and a senior research scientist there at the Mershon Center for International Security. Uh, John is the author of too many books. Uh, to mention, but uh, lately he wrote, uh, sort of lately, Overblown, How Politicians in the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them, uh, Atomic Obsession, this is the second one, Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda, and uh, with Mark Stewart, a couple years ago he wrote Terror, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security. He has a new book uh, coming out in the fall called Chasing Ghosts, which you can read about in a handout that we were distributing outside. Um, and he's also the editor of a book, an online compendium of cases that he edited uh, called Terrorism Since 9-11, The American Cases, which is a really good place to, it's, it's, uh, it's a sort of a live living book where uh, his, uh, the cases are added as they occur or if he can find someone to write them. So it's 700 something pages now and it's a good place to read about the particulars of these, all these different cases since 9-11. Um, and uh, with that, I will turn it over to David. Hi, thanks, thanks for coming out on this incredibly beautiful day. Um, as, I all, as I often do when I, when I show the film at film festivals and, and, and panels and gatherings, I want to thank the FBI for filming it for us. Um, and and, and I, actually, I really mean that because um, had, had the FBI not had their cameras rolling for hundreds of hours, um, this, the story of the Newberg Sting, uh, would be a classic he said, she said, that might you know, inter interest those um, critics of the FBI and no one else. But what we found in this case is that the FBI created a theatrical production and documented it all. Um, so the clips I'm going to show you 
Um, all contain dialogue. There's a little bit of recreation, but virtually all of what looks like undercover footage is indeed the FBI's own material, which was introduced in court in 2009. Um, just a little setup, and then I'll, I'll play you some clips. Um, in, in the summer of 2008, the FBI claimed that they had busted four Muslim would-be terrorists who had attempted to buy plastic explosives and a Stinger missile from an undercover informant named Shahed Hussein. Hussein was employed by the FBI and was sent to Newburgh, New York, which is an extremely impoverished town on the Hudson. Um, and he was sent to troll around mosques looking for uh, potential terrorists. Uh, he spent a lot of time at the local Newburgh mosque and basically was rebuffed by everybody who thought he was you know, a weirdo, possibly dangerous, some odd duck. But um, one day in the parking lot of the Newburgh mosque, he in encounters a man named James Cromedy. And that is the background for the first clip, the first couple of clips that I'll play. And can we lower the stage lights a little bit? I don't know if you'll be able to see well enough. And I don't see it on the screen either, so. There we go. Okay, here we go. When Hussein first approached James Cromedy in the parking lot of the Newburgh Mosque, he presented himself as a wealthy Pakistani who had come to the United States to meet people. And Cromedy says, in the biggest mistake of his life, those look like Pakistani shoes. And Shahed Hussein says, they are. Do you know about Pakistani shoes? And James Cromedy says, I've been to Pakistan, which he'd never been to. And so he knew about these shoes. He maybe saw them on TV and CNN. They then struck up a relationship that went on for months. Oh, wow. What car is this? This is my Beamer. This is the BMW? Yeah. You had it painted? No, that one. This is the other Beamer. Oh, yeah, that's the other one. one. Right. Yeah. I'm about to say, yeah, that's right, you got two beamers. Yeah, that's right. I got two beamers. I thought you had a Mercedes too, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got a Mercedes. Huh? I have a Mercedes. Right? You pull the seat back, huh? Ooh! I'm talking about this. <laughs> so we have the money here? <laughs> yes. To someone like Mr. Cromedy, who had spent his entire life in poverty, trying to support himself as a very low-level marijuana dealer, also working at the night shift at Walmart, making about $14,000 a year. I mean, that was a very big thing to him, Mr. Shiki Hussein's wealth. And Hussein played on that tremendously. What is your understanding that you make a lot of money and still be on the side of Allah? That'll be good, but I have to know what I'm gonna do to make the money. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of ideas, okay, for you. Um, sorry, I have to uh, cut out some material or we'd be here for 90 minutes, which is what the film lasts. Um, Hussein. Uh, continues to befriend Cromedy and starts floating the idea that uh, he's associated with terrorists 
and could pay handsomely for Cromedy if he could come up with a brilliant terrorist idea. James talked for hours, talking about crimes that he committed that never happened, talking about things that he had done that he had never done to impress Shahid Hussein. Whatever you need me to do, and it's feasible luck, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to get away with it. And Shahid Hussein introduced the idea that he was connected to J.E.M., J.A. Muhammad, and which is a legitimate terrorist organization that's on the United States watch list. J.A. Muhammad Jihad, because they are funding each and everything. So they are funding the money, so it's their show, you know, and let them run the show. So, I mean, everything comes from from there, so the cars, the money. In your mind, were your best targets here in New York? The best targets already been hit. Okay, now, but what do you think you could do? The best targets you will have in your mind? I would like to hit the bridge. But bridges are too hard to be hit because of their, of their made of steel. I renamed you two places last week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like you ignored me. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a brain. The brain that there, I do have one of those. This is the uh, uh, Riverdale Temple. Riverdale Temple. Matter of fact, yeah, that's the Riverdale Temple. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This is excellent. Because how come you go wrong? Everything is right there. Um, as they say in the film business, the plot thickens. Uh. If you can get some people, it'll be nice. If you be a body, it'll be nice. Okay? Do you have to use that word, body? Body. B O D D D Y U E W X Y Z. No. Real good Muslim brothers would be nice, you know? James Cromedy, this is a guy who has spent some time in prison for drug crimes, not for violent crimes. And it seems like Cromedy thinks that he hit the jackpot. Unfortunately to Hussein, Cromedy doesn't seem all that interested in actually going through with the plot. But you said that you would be good to get some brothers together. Don't worry about the brothers. Don't worry. You're gonna meet some brothers. This bees. <laughs> I'm hoping we can uh, we can do it. Don't worry, about then... brother. Just hold your seat. Are you sure, brother? You can get the brothers. I'm trying. Just like you said, Allah makes things happen. Sure. Maybe it's not my mission then. So what do you think I should say to my guys back in New York? Tell your brothers we need some more time. That's what you need to talk. I want to recruit a guy. I want to get some guy. Well, just let me let me just try one more thing. I hate. Okay. Let me just try one more thing. If not, don't worry about it. I'll call it off. In 2009, James Cromedy kind of goes AWOL. For a long time, he goes out of contact with Hussein. Hussein starts calling Cromedy. Cromedy's not answering. 
Hussein goes to the mosque, no sign of comedy. He starts asking people at the mosque, have you seen James? Have you seen James? He goes around Newburgh, have you seen James? And Shahid Hussein hears that James Cromedy is back around. Hello? You, you remember me now? Talk to no, me. No, no, brother. You could talk to me. Listen to me. Yes, Listen brother. to me. I don't left the place and everything. I just left. I can make you $250,000, but you don't want it. What can I tell you? <laughs> we can laugh. Okay, come see me, brother. Two hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs> Two hundred and fifty thousand means no more Newburgh. This is a small city, just soaking and drowning in poverty. I mean, your kids are struggling, and you know you you're in debt up to your ass. Somebody offers you a large chunk of change. <laughs> Fresh out of jail, I'm interested in what it's our idea. Okay, uh, what's what's it about? What do we got to do? Assalamu alaikum. Khatija. Thank you, brother. Your family love you, brother. Your family love you, brother. Huh? Think these these guys will do for the money or for the cause? They would do it for the money. <laughs> They're not even thinking about the cause. At this point, uh, Hussein now has assembled this this bloodthirsty crew of, of terrorists. Um, the other three men, besides James Cromedy, include um, a man, schizophrenic man, living at a halfway house, totally penniless and two um, semi-employed men who have drug dealing records. Uh, none of them have any history of terrorism whatsoever. Hussein steers them towards the Riverdale Mosque. He provides um, fake plastic explosives and an inert stinger missile. And on uh, that July, Hussein says, we are ready to commit the crime. And here is what happened and how the FBI spun it. James Cromedy gets out of the car. He takes the bombs in these duffel bags. He opens up these two cars that have been placed in front of these temples. Puts the bombs in the car. As James Cromedy is leaving these bombs in the car, he gets back in the car with the other the FBI says it has thwarted a terror plot. Federal agents moved in tonight and say their suspects are homegrown would-be terrorists. The men put what they believe to be bags of plastic explosives, C4, a total of 30 pounds, into the cars. But when they returned to their SUV, officers rushed the vehicle, smashed the windows, and made the arrests. What have you learned? There were four people involved, uh, all... Uh, uh, Muslims, and my understanding is originally this uh, emanated from the mosque in uh, Newburgh, New York. 
this is a group that we knew about. Uh, this is a group that, you know, through tripwires that we have set up, uh, through, you know, various communities, sources, and, and the like, networks that we have set up, uh, we're able to determine that, you know, there was a distinct interest by this group to conduct an attack. I heard this bang. I thought it was the kids banging on my door. The second bang, all I heard was FBI get down. Only thing I could say was I screamed from upstairs, Lord, don't move. They just kicked in the door. Well, first we heard a real, like a loud boom, like boom, boom. And I, I thought it was next door. And then when they came in, it was like, they just they just rushed with like the, with like the assault rifles. And I was, I mean, I was like, I was still weak because I, I, I'm just fresh from the hospital. So it was like, I could barely move. They had assault rifles, they had M16 grenades attached onto their bulletproof vest. They had some big rock wallers. Next thing I know, I seen a helicopter light beaming inside the room. People coming down out of helicopters in the tree. I said, is this for real? And I didn't know the significance until I calmed down and saw the badge on his thing. It said, Homeland Security. And I said, I'm in some big shit. Bombs had been uh, uh, made by the FBI technicians. They were totally inert. No one was ever at risk. So, so they actually tried to purchase this material. They just happened to be purchasing it from the FBI. The arrest itself was a well-staged event. I think Hollywood would have been quite proud. They staged uh, a few blocks away from here. Uh, they used a, an 18-wheeler, a low boy, as we call it. They then came in with what they call a bear cap, which is a smaller armored vehicle. Members of the Joint Terrorist Task Force, uh, FBI, NYPD, state police investigators, they had a hundred police officers on scene. They had a tractor trailer come out and block their path. They had bomb squads. They had lights and sirens, none of which was required. Nobody's armed. Nobody has a bomb. Did you believe they were a genuine threat? Yes. Uh, based on what they, what they were attempting to do uh, and based on their actions. Everything was designed so that every newspaper in New York could say the FBI made a big arrest. It's the best press. Standing next to the really bad guy when you caught him before there's a crime. Everybody wants to say, I saved America. And um, shortly after the four were arrested, you know, they, were, they were arraigned, taken to court, and they declined to... Uh, take a plea bargain, Think, feeling that this was a really outrageous case of entrapment, an FBI undercover agent offering a quarter million dollars to four people who really have no plot in mind whatsoever. Um, and they fought the case hard and, and lost, although the trial judge, Colleen McMahon, wrote, today is the day I'm ashamed of my government. Before the government came along, these men were not engaged in any criminal activity at all, and only the government could make um, a terrorist out of a buffoon like James Cromedy. Um, unfortunately, they lost a trial, and because a Stinger missile was involved in the case, which was introduced 
cynically, I believe, by the FBI, um, they received, it, it set forth a statutory mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years. And so these four guys, who were really guilty of nothing more than, than stupidity and greed, um, are, are now serving 25 years as terrorists um, and have helped the FBI gin up their reputation as a terrorist fighting organization. The FBI, as a result of this case, has spread the notion dangerously that there's a much deeper connection between Islam and terrorism, and in fact there is, and they spread the notion that terrorists are lurking in every mosque. Um, so it's had, it was a, as a former prosecutor, and I, I really am a great believer in, in the good intentions of law enforcement, and I believe in the FBI passionately. I think they're a fantastic organization and do great things, but uh, there are times when you know, checks and balances have to come in place, and, and as a journalist, when I saw this, I realized something had to happen. Um, and so, the, you know, the Cato Institute, although they need new speakers, I have to say that, it's a beautiful auditorium, um, has, has, you know, Except, been... Uh, contributions. Well, yes, contributions. <laughs> you need them. Um, maybe I'll chip in. Um, uh, has been a great supporter of this, and I really thank grateful for the opportunity to talk to you about it. I, I think um, both my co-panelists here can put this into a much broader social context, so I'll turn it over to them. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Noreen Shah. I'm the director of the Security and Human Rights Program at Amnesty International USA. For those of you who don't know, Amnesty International is a global movement of more than 7 million people around the world campaigning to end human rights abuses. We work in more than 100 countries uh, on abuses ranging from solitary confinement to uh, protection of civilians in conflict and civilian suffering, uh, refugees, uh, violence against women. Really, it, it runs the gamut for us. I work specifically on US national security issues, including Guantanamo, uh, accountability for torture, NSA surveillance, and surveillance impacting communities of people in the United States, whether they be communities of American Muslims, communities of African Americans, environmentalists, uh, anybody who is expressing uh, their beliefs and their opinions and is thereby becoming a target of law enforcement. So I come to uh, Amnesty from the ACLU. Before that, I was at Columbia Law School. And I co-wrote the report, just grab it, uh, Illusion of Justice. Uh, when I was at Columbia, I wrote this report with Human Rights Watch. So Illusion of Justice, that's the name of this report. It's a report that looks at 500 cases, um, 27 in depth, including the Newburgh Sting case. So we called this report Illusion of Justice. And this is actually on the cover is a still from uh, David's fantastic film. We call it illusion of justice because it does manufacture a sense of justice happening. Uh, when you think about terrorism and you think about some of the abuses that are happening in the name of, um, of Islam or in the name of anti-Americanism right now uh, in the world, thousands and thousands of people are being killed in terrorist attacks. Uh, ISIS in particular is one of the groups that the US government is most concerned about. And a lot of the new generation of cases, right, not the Newburgh Sting case, but cases that we're seeing in the last several months, they're about individuals who uh, are alleged to be trying to join ISIS. And the, the illusion of justice here is that by catching those people before they can go join ISIS, we are creating justice. 
So for Amnesty International, ISIS, I should say, just start out by saying, is an incredibly uh, major concern. ISIS commits human rights atrocities. We recently issued a report about ISIS subjecting hundreds and possibly thousands of women to sexual slavery and rape, uh, forced marriages, horrible atrocities. The UN has issued a report saying that ISIS is burying children alive and crucifying them, uh, killing scores of people in Iraq and Syria. ISIS is a serious concern from a human rights perspective, as well as from a perspective, of course, of US national security. So justice, we want justice too. We want effective counterterrorism measures to stop people from taking people's rights to life, their right to freedom of expression all over the world. All of these things are implicated by terrorism. But this is an illusion of justice. This is an illusion of effective counterterrorism because in many of the cases that we examined closely in the Human Rights Watch report, what was happening was that the US government was identifying individuals who appeared to be susceptible to becoming would-be informants. And what the US government's intention here is a little bit unclear. We should start with what we know, and then we should identify what we don't know. So here's what we know. The FBI reorganized after 9-11. Counterterrorism became its chief priority. It, in fact, was blamed in some ways for 9-11 for intelligence failures. The FBI's budget increases hugely. It goes from about $3 billion now to $8.5 billion, I believe. And in Explaining its budget, it goes from in, in 2001, when it's trying to explain why it wants $3.5 billion, it's saying oh, there's a drug war, transnational uh, threats are incredibly complex, uh, we need to do more to stop drug trafficking, and that's its, its reason for existence in 2001 for the FBI. Now its reason for existence is counterterrorism. And so, for instance, in uh, the director of the FBI's testimony before Congress this year, uh, asking for $8.4 billion, uh, the director says, the threat of terrorism is incredibly complex. Homegrown violent extremism uh, is something that the FBI needs more money to tackle. The new face of terrorism is everywhere. And the potential population of would-be attackers is not easily knowable. So now the FBI is telling a story about what's happening inside the United States, how we have to counter terrorism. Terrorism could happen anywhere. The face of a terrorist could be anyone. It could look like James Cromedy. It could look like me. It could even look like you guys. And when you have that kind of threat, that threat that is everywhere, and you've got an agency that has reorganized and, and become uh, dependent upon that narrative of threat for its own livelihood, right, for its own budget, that's where you spell trouble, right? That's where you get to the FBI, individual FBI agents making choices about how to handle particular cases, how to target individuals, and who to target. So when I uh, co-wrote the report with Human Rights Watch, uh, we looked at 27 cases in depth, and we tried to look at the kinds of individuals who are being targeted in these cases. I should say that overall, there have been about 500 terrorism prosecutions since 9-11. Uh, multiple studies have found that about 50% of those cases involve informants. We went through all those cases, and what we identified was that about 30% of those cases involved informants playing an incredibly active role, an aggressive role, where they were creating, helping to create and manufacture the underlying plot. So it's not to say that all of the terrorism indictments that we see are ones where informants are committing abuses or, or manipulating individuals or acting aggressively, but a large, a significant proportion of them are. So what happens in these cases? Who are the individuals? Well, obviously, there are individuals like those in the Newberg Sting film who want money. There are also individuals who often have mental illness, um, individuals who are dumb. Uh, in, in David's words, stupid in David's words, have some kind of mental incapacity issue. There's a real question as to whether those individuals, if left to their own devices, could have actually shown the initiative and the intelligence and creativity to conduct any kind of terrorist attack. 
But there's other kinds of cases, too. There's, there's cases of people who are smart, who get lured into these uh, entrapment-type situations. I interviewed some of the family members. I interviewed some of the individuals who are uh, the defendants in these cases. And what became clear to me was that a lot of the individuals who get caught up in these cases are people who simply want to boast. They're people who want a new friend. They're very lonely individuals. They're desperate for someone to think that they're smart or creative or interesting or funny. They lie about who they are. Uh, there's a lot of bravado involved in these cases. Sometimes they're old men, they're taxi drivers who just want somebody to listen to them and think that they're special. A lot of the times they're 18 and 19 year old kids who don't have any friends at school, who aren't really part of a social structure within school. And so they're online looking for friends, looking for something to grab onto. Uh, they become the terrorist, terrorist sympathizers. And for the FBI, uh, those kinds of individuals are people who could be recruited by ISIS or Al-Qaeda or other armed groups. So that's the question, really. What do we do? Let's assume that ISIS really is recruiting people aggressively inside the United States. And let's assume that the numbers are correct about ISIS, that um, as the Director of National Intelligence said in February 2015, about 3,400 citizens from Western countries have gone to join ISIS. That's out of about uh, 20,000 total people who have gone to join ISIS. Uh, from outside of the region, making ISIS about 31,000 people strong in terms of their armed forces. So 3,400 of them being from Western countries, including the United States, but more uh, European countries. So let's assume that the US government, that the FBI is right, that there are people who are actively trying to recruit young men and women in this country. How should the FBI be responding? Is it correct for the FBI to respond by using informants? If they are going to use informants, what are the ways in which they should be using them and shouldn't be using them? The Newburg Sting is a great example of something that passes, doesn't pass any kind of test. Uh, it looks plainly idiotic for the FBI to be going after individuals by waving $250,000 at them. At the same time, I can tell you as an advocate who's been working on these issues, these are among the least sympathetic individuals uh, you can think of. There are people, some of them, who are willing to push the button at the end of the day. They were willing to blow up a building. If it was for $250,000, OK, I still wouldn't be willing to blow up a building for $250,000. I would never want to join ISIS knowing what I know about their human rights atrocities. I cannot fathom why anyone would find them at all sympathetic or interesting. But there are people who are like that. And we know that in the last three months, I guess four months since January, uh, there have been about 24 individuals who were indicted. Uh, in cases that are of that homegrown terrorism variety. So 24 cases where individuals uh, were indicted in, usually in New York and a, and a lot of other places, Kansas, Colorado, Chicago. There are cases happening all over the country. And the way they're reported is just like the Newburgh Sting case, right? A teenager who was at the airport, Chicago O'Hara, with his little sister was about to board a plane to go join ISIS. And when you read those indictments, I don't know how many of you guys have actually read any of those indictments. Anybody? Not, not a lot of people actually take the time uh, to read the indictments, but even if you did take the time to read the indictments, they sound pretty scary. I want to just read you one um, from a Kansas case that was, I think, last week or the year, week before. A 20-year-old Topeka resident told a confidant that um, was actually an FBI informant that he wasn't liked at his mosque because he expressed support for al-Qaeda. And even the FBI took him to a mosque and tried to get him counseling there. But even while he was being counseled for uh, what ended up being bipolar disorder, this young individual um, said that he really wanted, he really wanted to 
conduct a terrorist attack. It was one of his greatest wishes. Uh, he, he eventually ended up buying, trying to buy a bomb that he thought was a thousand pound bomb. So you read that terrorist, that indictment, and you think, well, I'm really glad that they caught this 19-year-old kid who apparently was intent on buying a bomb and had bipolar disorder. Well, clearly he was an unstable individual, so I'm glad they got him before he could actually act on his unstable feelings. There's lots of unstable individuals out there. It's good that we're able to identify them and prosecute them fairly in our US courts. This is better than a situation of just grabbing people and sending them to Guantanamo. This is better than a situation of uh, just letting them go free, obviously, because they could conduct a terrorist attack at any time. That's how a reasonable person would read these indictments, and that's how a reasonable person would read the media stories, which do create a climate of fear. Right? You see, what you see on the news is that somebody in Topeka, Kansas, was going to bomb a local uh, army installation, or somebody in Brooklyn was going to bomb a synagogue, or somebody in uh, Chicago was going to board a plane and go to join ISIS. So how should, if we don't want to read the indictments just at their facial value, if we want to get behind that, what should we be looking for? Why should we be concerned, first of all, about these cases? And what should we be asking the FBI to do differently at all? The FBI ha does have a responsibility to uh, pursue effective counterterrorism measures. But the question is, should it be sending informants into communities on fishing expeditions. So the first thing that one, one of the first things that we asked for in the report is to stop sending people on fishing expeditions. Stop looking for the low hanging fruit. Stop going after individuals because you believe that you can find somebody who is stupid enough or vulnerable enough um, or ill enough, mentally ill enough, that they will go along with an informant and become manipulated by that informant. The FBI should also do more to supervise informants that it's using. A lot of the informants that are involved in these cases have criminal histories. A lot of them have histories specifically of lying to the FBI, lying in court, lying in their testimony. Uh, and one of the cases that we examined in uh, this report, a case called the Fortix Five, uh, the informant was telling the FBI that five individuals knew about this, this plot, including three brothers, uh, who didn't even speak the language that the, plot, the main plotter and the informant were speaking. They were speaking in Arabic. These three brothers uh, were Bosnians, and so they didn't even know what was being said. But the case was created uh, to involve this huge conspiracy of five individuals to take down Fort Dix in New Jersey because the FBI wanted to have more defendants involved. And the informant was saying, yeah, yeah, these guys know. They, they know a lot. But then when the, the informant testified at trial, he initially testified, uh, yeah, the Duca brothers, these, these three Bosnian guys, they didn't know anything because they didn't know what language you're speaking. Then uh, there was a recess in the court hearing. And when the, the informant went back on the stand, he said, oh, uh, yeah, no, they, they knew. So you've got informants who are incredibly unreliable. And that's not really surprising. Informants in drug cases and any kinds of ordinary criminal cases are unreliable. What's changed here is that the level of supervision for the informants and the uh, the asks of the informants. They, the informant should never be the person who's involved in deciding what the, the, the location for a plot is. The informant should plainly not be providing money uh, as an incentive to conduct a crime. Uh, the informant should not be going past a certain point and cajoling an individual and actually should be providing some kind of off-ramp to say, well, you, should, you, know, you don't have to do this. What we see instead in these cases is an informant aggressively going after individuals, individuals that they initially go after. Those individuals show some interest, but then they 
peel away just as in the, Sting, in the uh, Newberg Sting case, but the, the informant continues to go back to them for months and months. Some of these cases go on for more than a year because the informants are intent not on sussing out who is actually a person who is likely to go join ISIS or likely to conduct a terrorist attack. That is not the objective in some of these cases for the informant, even if it is for the FBI. But for the informant, it's about showing results. It's about showing success. And that's where the root of a lot of these abuses are. So why are we concerned about uh, some of these cases from a human rights perspective? Well, I think that it's not really just about human rights. It's actually just about how you view individuals. Do you see them as uh, ends in and of themselves or as means? One of the reasons why we've got 24 indictments of individuals for uh, material support or for joining, attempting to join ISIS over the last few months is because of this uh, overriding fear that people have of ISIS, an, a justifiable fear, an understandable fear in light of what they've been doing and of their attacks uh, on individuals all over the world. But the fear here for me is that the individuals in these cases, these recent cases and the older cases, are just poster children. They're poster children for the FBI and for the federal government and explaining how it's winning a war on terrorism. When you think about the rise of ISIS, uh, and of course, you know, I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a person who has studied the region in depth. When you think about the rise of ISIS, you think, why did this happen? Is it because of 24 individuals who might join ISIS out of 31,000? Is it even because of the 31,000 people who see themselves as part of ISIS? Or is it some kind of intelligence failure for the US government? How is it that the US didn't know about ISIS uh, and, know and have a plan to prepare with? Uh, is it also a failure of the US government in terms of preventing the flow of money to ISIS, the millions and millions of dollars that ISIS has to operate with? My greatest concern is that these cases, these constant indictments that we see over and over again, I think seven in the last month, are merely a distraction. Instead of having an honest conversation about why we are in the situation we are in with terrorism around the world, the US government wants us to believe that it is winning the fight on terrorism. And its poster children are people like James Comedy. Okay, let me uh, add to uh, some of the discussions already uh, there. I've also, uh, David talks about putting this in broader context, and you've already heard, heard a fair amount about that, and I'd like to do uh, some more. Um, the, uh, what I've been doing is a set of case studies that Ben mentioned, um, which are uh, of every case since 9-11 in which there has been an Islamist terrorist who has either, who has apparently tried to do damage within the United States. This would include not only terrorists in the United States, like the Hamburg people, uh, by the uh, Newburgh people, but also the um, uh, people of, uh, like the shoe bomber and so forth, people who are based overseas. So there's, 70, there's now 70 cases, and there's a flyer out there, if you didn't pick it up, uh, with 69 cases, but one just happened over the weekend. So there are now 70 cases that we'll be looking at, and most of them have fully developed case studies. Uh, there is one for this case written by David Bernstein. They're mostly written by... Uh, advanced uh, um, honor students at Ohio State. Uh, Bernstein is now at the university, at the, in the law school at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Um, and so, uh, and I'm also been putting these together, not only for this book, but also for a forthcoming book with Mark Stewart called Chasing Ghosts that Ben also mentioned, and trying to uh, come to many of the same conclusions of which you, you've already heard. Um, 
The, uh, the case seems to be fairly unique. This particular case is special in, a, in several respects, but two in particular stand out to me. Uh, one is the first time the FBI actually went to actually have them push the button. Uh, previously, when they had an informants, by the way, of, of the 70 cases or so, more than half of them have, inside, have informants, people working in the plot, not just looking at it from outside, surveilling it, but actually looking within the plot. Um, and of the, you know, the 19 cases since um, 2010 or so, the 19 cases in this decade, uh, 15 of them have been uh, types with, with, the, uh, uh, with an informant working inside. At any rate, in, in the early days, they're basically just getting information about this guy wants to do something, and then they're trying to bring court cases. Then it got closer to actually giving them weapons or having to take weapons. For example, there's a case in Rockford, Illinois, on which a guy decided he was going to uh, really push the Islamic revolution forward. And his brilliant plan of this was to plant a hand grenade in a trash can in a uh, mall in Rockford, Illinois. He said, I'll do that, and everybody, all the, all the uh, Muslims will rise up. Um, and so the FBI informant said, well, you need our hand grenades, right? And I just have, have a couple to sell. Um, and uh, you can have them and put them in the trash can if you want, but uh, you, have to, you have to pay me $100. And the guy said, well, actually, I don't have $100. Uh, so then they said, well, what do you have? Well, I have a couple of old stereo speakers. So he exchanged the stereo speakers for the bogus grenades um, and then was arrested. Uh, the next step was in, in Newburgh, uh, in, uh, in the Newburgh case, uh, was the case where they actually went beyond that. He takes possession of the weapons and then puts them in something and then actually presses the button or dials a cell phone to push it off. And they've also advanced somewhat since that time. Also, they do give, in more recent cases, the, uh, the opportunity for the uh, uh, people they're working with to back out. Uh, so they frequently say, and they record this very carefully uh, to uh, cover that issue, uh, you don't have to do this, you can do just do protest or you could go to another country and do something, you don't have to do this. Uh, so they do, uh, they more recently have been uh, doing that. And anyway, that, that, that was one, the, the pressing the button was the first case, it sort of making it easier to uh, prosecute overall. Um, and um, there's also a, um, a, a, another major difference is basically with the, the judge, as far as I know, this is the only case in which the judges have really, in their judgments, their official statements, have really blasted the police for what they've been doing. And uh, uh, Colleen um, um, uh, McMahon, who's a graduate of Ohio State University, as it turns out, and then she later descended into being, uh, uh, going to the uh, Harvard, Harvard Law School. Uh, but anyway, she's a federal judge there. Um, and she completely, repeatedly lambasted the, the thing. Let me give you give the plot. It turns out the government did absolutely everything that the defense predicted in its previous motion to dismiss this indictment. The government indisputably manufactured the crimes of which this uh, defendant stand convicted, um, and they did all the details. There's not the slightest doubt in my mind that James Cromarty could never have dreamed up the scenario which actually became, he actually became involved in, and if by some chance he did, he would not have had the slightest idea of how to make it happen. Uh, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, which is extreme, you know, not vague doubt, but without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there would never have been a crime here except the government instigated it, planned it, and brought it to fruition. Uh, she also points out a couple of ingenious things that the government did do. One was um, they basically made it so that these guys would get their weapons in Connecticut. So that made it a federal case because they went outside of New York. Uh, and the other thing they did was essentially pursue the idea of bombing with a Stinger missile 
uh, shooting a plane which presumably on the ground with nobody in it. It was flying. These guys would never in a million years be able to hit it. Uh, they probably couldn't hit it even if they're standing right next to it on the ground. But at any rate, um, she then uh, basically, uh, uh, they, they did this, this stinger missile thing, which, um, uh, as, as pointed out earlier, may, it comes with a minimum 25-year sentence if you, if you try to take down an airplane or planning to do it. So in many respects, the government made that happen because they didn't have to do the stinger missile. They could do something else like blowing up a bridge or something like it was originally there. Um, the um, the uh, uh, Gromity was incapable of committing an act of terrorism on his own. Um, and uh, the, the, the uh, informant was a prime mover instigator of the, all the criminal activity. At any rate, th that's very unusual to have that happen. The, the, the case really came out there. I think she was basically trapped, and she gave the minimum sentence. It was 25 years because she legally could not give a lower sentence after the, uh, because there was a real crime committed, as the jury had, had decided. Um, okay, um, the, um, let me turn to a different issue, uh, which is, uh, the, there are really bad people out there, and they do want to kill people sometimes, and they certainly talk about it. Uh, what should the FBI do? And what I'd like to do is advance a proposition, uh, which is in the Chasing Ghost books, and it's also written up in uh, Real Clear Defense over the weekend, an op-ed I did, uh, along with uh, Mark Stewart. Um, basically, the idea was to do a... Um, uh, 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 you've got people like Chromaty who are talking the talk, uh, and so the issue is, what can you do against that? And it seems to me a possibility, just tell them to scare them. And let me give you three cases, three, three bits of evidence, which I think thinks that, that, that makes me think this would basically work with these kinds of knuckleheads, essentially. Um, uh, first of all, there's one case in the, uh, in the, in the um, case book which started to come in, and I said, oh, my God, it isn't really a terrorism case. We shouldn't have had a student even do it. But the more it came in, the more interesting it became, and it became perhaps the most interesting case, case 39 to be exact. It happened here in Washington. Uh, there was a guy uh, who was on Facebook. A lot of these guys are on Facebook looking for people to help them. I mean, really brilliant you know, way of keeping yourself secret. Um, they usually get three calls. The first one says, you're an idiot. The second one says, don't do it. And the third one says... I just happen to have, from an FBI informant, I just happen to have this car bomb in my garage, and I'm looking for someone to help me along with it, and we could make beautiful terrorism music together. Let's get together. So that, that's a fairly common procedure. Uh, seemingly, in the last two cases, uh, that was the case as well. They were on Facebook. Um, um, but um, the, uh, anyway, he, he gets on Facebook and is doing all this jihadist blather, and he gets some correspondence. So one is a woman in New Orleans, um, and he, start, he gets madder and madder about uh, things, and, he's, and he talks about how we took down the Twin Towers and so forth. So it's not trivial stuff. It's pretty scary stuff in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, then she talks to the FBI, and he believes that she probably has talked to the FBI. He calls her a bitch and gets really mad and says, tomorrow I'm going to plant a bomb on the metro in, New York, in Washington. He's in northern Virginia uh, in, on the bomb in, 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 on the metro. And tell your dad, her father worked in Washington, so she, he said, uh, tell your dad not to, fly, to get on the metro tomorrow because it's going to be blown up by me. So she tells this to the FBI and goes back to the police, obviously, up here, um, and the FBI people up here. And uh, so they have a real dilemma. This guy is probably just a mindless blowhard. Um, um, and, um, and so the question is, uh, do you, you, if you, you know, just ignore it, the problem is you might be wrong about that and you might actually have it. So they arrested him. Now, if they, under the old days, what they could have done is they could have infiltrated an informant. Uh, 
who says, you know, what do you got? You know, let's let's talk about it. maybe we can bomb up the bomb up the metro. In fact, there's another case exactly like that, very similar period. Uh, uh, but they didn't have time because obviously he was going to do it the next day. So they arrested him. Uh, then they took him in, and they couldn't. Then he hadn't committed very many crimes. Uh, he had done a lot of irresponsible bloviating, but if that were illegal, of course, Washington, D.C. would become depopulated very quickly. Um, so consequently, um, they, uh, they, the only thing they could get him on was making an interstate threat because she was in New Orleans. So basically, he came to court, and, they, and he got time served. He got a real scare. He got a short time in jail, uh, and then he went back to Northern Virginia, where he probably still is. And that worked, you know, just basically scaring them straight. Uh, many of these people, as we've already heard, are basically pretty emotionally immature. They're not hardened terrorists. They're not the people of the book big time. They're not really suicidal in, in most cases. The vast majority of the American cases, they're, they're, no, they're, they're going to plant a bomb and then they're going to set it off from a hotel next door with a cell phone. It's not suicidal. Um, and so this guy was scared straight. Okay, what happens is there's another set of cases very much like that which is what the Secret Service does when somebody is bloviating about uh, killing the president. What they don't do is they don't send somebody to say, oh, you want to kill the president too? You know, meet him in the bar and so forth. You know, I hate this president too. Maybe we could work out a thing where we kill the president together. I have a gun. You have the will. We have to we get him cornered and so forth. Uh, they don't do that. What they do is they go to the guy who's made this bloviation and give him a meaningful visit. They really they essentially scare him and say, we're on to you, we heard you say that, et cetera, whatever, um, and then they leave. And if the president then visits the city where this bloviator is, they vi visit the bloviator again. And that it seems to work perfectly well. It, as the Northern Virginia case, we haven't heard from this guy again. Maybe he'll pop up somewhere, but not. Um, so basically what you got is a situation is early on, instead of planning an informant, you basically just scare the guy. And because these guys are not very sophisticated, because they're not really terrorists in the big time sense, like Cromartie, though they are talking the talk, they're talking about how we took down the Twin Towers. I mean, it's not sweet stuff. Uh, they're not innocent in that sense, that they have a chance of being uh, redirected uh, simply by being scared. Not all of them will this work. Sometimes it might be a problem. Uh, it might even scare them into doing something well, you know, before they could, uh, before they really get caught. Uh, but I think it holds a good chance of of, of, of working uh, for a large number of people, rather than going through the informant route, uh, in which you basically have to move these guys into a crime. Then they get 25 life years. One guy got has gotten uh, two or three life terms. I mean, he won't be out until he's nine, 353 or something. Um, and you have to, you know keep these, these guys in jail all the time and pay for their upkeep. Um, so consequently, that might work. And one other piece of evidence is this. Uh, the FBI very frequently uh, finds somebody who's been bloviating, um, and they don't have anything really on him, but they can find other things to convict him of, drug charges, particularly immigration charges. And so they call it the Al Capone approach. Al Capone was not arrested for, for racketeering, but for income tax evasion. They get him on something they can get him on. They can't get him on racketeering because they don't have enough evidence or good enough evidence. Uh, so the Al Capone approach is now used probably about three times more than any other uh, than the uh, informant case or bringing the course actually to trial. Um, and so what you get is a large number, we now have a large number of people who have been talking the talk, never got very far, and then were arrested and tried on something relatively minor. In the case of immigration violations, they can be thrown out of the country, but the rest of them are still here. The jail sentences they get for relatively small crimes are short, and many of them are out now. 
Now, we do know who has tried to do terrorism in this case, and nobody who's tried to do terrorism in this country has previously been gone through that routine, being arrested, uh, being scared, getting a very short uh, jail sentence, and then come out and then trying to do terrorism. So that also seems to work uh, extremely well. Um, um, so overall, those, that's a possibility. It'd be a lot cheaper. It would not get the kind of headlines the FBI seems to enjoy getting. Uh, but in many cases, not all, uh, it would probably work to defuse the situation uh, without uh, taking it to this, this extreme step. Uh, okay, let me end, I think, on that. Uh, yeah, let me end on it. Thank you. Um, let me ask a couple questions uh, before we get to the for the audience. The first question is just uh, uh, for uh, David and Noreen, maybe because it's uh, about the legal uh, particulars in a sense. Uh, we've heard a lot about informants. Uh, a, um, what are informants? Uh, they're different than agents, but uh, maybe you could say what they are and how they're compensated and uh, how many there are, if we know, uh, either in this realm of uh, looking for terrorists or overall, um, and then uh, final, uh, finally, in the in the realm of uh, factual questions, uh, why not entrapment? Why? Uh, what's the legal situation with entrapment such that uh, these gentlemen were convicted uh, and were not uh, able to get off on entrapment? And, and uh, why is it the fact that nobody gets off on entrapment in these cases? Do you want to start? Uh, sure. Um, is this is this on? Can you hear me? Great. Um, there are about 15, FBI estimates say you have about 15,000 informants in the United States at present. Um, and they've, they've been an integral and actually important part of FBI uh, investigations since time began. And, and what, what, what's an informant? An informant is a non-member of the FBI. They're not an agent. They're usually someone who's been in trouble with the law. And the FBI will be alerted to them. And they would approach this person and say, look, have I got a deal for you? If you help us find other criminals such like yourself in your network, um, <clears throat> we will make your case go away, and you'll essentially become deputized informally to be one of our one of our agents, although not formally an agent. That's exactly what happened with Shahed Hussein in, in the Newberg case. Shahed Hussein was. Um, had some trek with with, inform, with, with with terrorists, and no one's quite clear about his background. He's a pretty shady guy. He en ended up in Albany taking driver's tests for people and faking translating uh, in, in, in Urdu um, to get uh, taking bribes to help people get driver's licenses. A really sort of low-level, scuzzy crime. But the FBI saw him as, as a fantastic, um, fantastically useful agent uh, or informant. They then paid him. They paid him about $96,000 a year to do this, so long as he keeps bringing in cases. And he gets an undisclosed bonus if it results in a conviction. Um, now, the FBI has been doing this for a long time. And what they used to do, and I've talked to a number of agents about this, um, one of whom actually is on camera in the film, um, is they would just use the informant to, to get inside the ring, to figure out who's, you know, what's going on, what's, what's happening out there in, in, in this shadowy uh, underworld of crime. The minute the contact is made, the informant would then introduce a, a friend of the informant who would be a legitimate FBI agent, someone who, who's trained in the law, who knows about law enforcement, and would, would take over the case. Uh, it's very easily done. It wasn't done in the Newberg case. And what you end up with in cases where it's not done, like Newberg, is you have a rogue agent who's in, the, in it for the money. 
and we'll do anything that it takes to push this case to fruition. Um, there's an old expression in the FBI when, when they had dealt with informants. They ask a question, is a, a potential crime they're, they're looking at aspirational or operational? And aspirational means bloviating, sitting around a bar going, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to take down a building too, you know, on behalf of Allah. And, but they're never really going to do anything. They're just going to sit around and talk. Operational is when they say, I've got a bomb in my, in my garage and I'm going to set it off next week and come join me. And it used to be that the FBI said, if it's just aspirational, we would let people go or we keep an eye on them. And that has changed. And um, just to add one thing to John Mueller's list of recommendations to the FBI, if they want to go picking off low-hanging fruit in the theory that we, we got to them first. Al-Qaeda might have found James Cromedy and offered him $250,000 also. So we got him first and we got him off the streets. If they're going to do that, they need to tell the truth about it. And one of the, I think, great moral offenses that you see in the Newberg sting is that they, the FBI said, no, we infiltrated a ring of terrorists for a year and all they did was try to buy weapons from us. And when, when um, John... Mueller, uh, Robert Mueller, no relation to John, uh, former director of the FBI, went before Congress and was, was asking for money. The, one of the first case out of his mouth was the Newberg case. They're proud of this case. This method works for them. It makes them look good. But they are, the problem is they are not telling the truth to senators and to the public about what their real method of operations is. If they wanted to come clean about it, then let everybody vote, and we can decide where we end up at the end of the day. Do you want to deal with entrapment? Sure. So the short answer is the reason nobody wins entrapment defenses is because this is a terrorism uh, context. And the evidence is highly prejudicial against the defendant. And what often happens in these cases is that uh, the government shows uh, the videos that the defendant had watched in the past. And those videos could include Americans being killed in Iraq or um, you know, in more recent cases, I'm sure they're ISIS beheading videos that the defendants watched. And those videos uh, and website visits are used to show predisposition, that the individual, before the informant came into the picture, the individual was predisposed to do these things. That's the legal aspect of it. But there's a more um, atmospheric aspect to it as well, which is that in these trials, these juries are uh, really just, I was going to say bombarded. I don't want to use that word. but. <laughs> Uh, a ton of information is thrown at them that associates these individuals sitting uh, before them with horrible acts of terrorism. And that overwhelms these trials. For instance, in one of the cases that I mentioned, the Fort Dix Five case, um, one of the jurors was uh, a mother of a person who had been severely injured in Iraq. And one of the videos that the defense had watched um, on their laptop was of an individual uh, US soldier uh, being shot at in Iraq. And so when the prosecutor showed this video and said, look, these defendants before you were watching these videos of Americans being killed in Iraq, that juror uh, was personally affected by that because that had happened to her own son. And when there was a recess, according to the defendants, uh, that juror just glared at the defendants, had a, a stack of books and slammed it on the table. Uh, and that's a small symptom of the prejudice that infects a lot of these cases. Uh, you know, if you take the same set of facts and you apply it to the case of, let's say, an individual who's Christian, who grows up in a part of the country that is rural, that um, has a lot of anti, uh, 
pro-control of abortion rights uh, messages in his church. He's meeting with individuals all the time who are interested in ending abortion, uh, access to abortion in this country. And if there was an informant who was involved in that kind of um, scenario, and an informant cajoled a 19-year-old person who was a devout Christian who believed strongly that abortion is a violation of the right to life, if an informant was involved in that kind of case, and then you had that in a court, we don't know because we haven't had a case exactly like that because the you know the FBI doesn't invest in informants in the same way for those kinds of cases. But I think that it, the entrapment defense would be stronger. That's a hunch. That's there's no proof of that. But the atmospherics of terrorism make these cases very difficult to win. Right, entrapment's a jury finding. Yeah. So you know if you're the attorney for these people, you have to say we're going to go to trial. Right. You're going to turn down a deal. We're going to put video of you pressing a fake button or whatever it is. You, watching yeah. terrible videos in the Newburgh Sting case, they blew up a car, right, for, well, on, the, at the FBI the, the, the government, during, during the trial, the government went down to Quantico and took a real bomb in a real car and blew it up on camera and showed it to the jury saying, see, this is what would have happened if these had been real bombs, which they didn't even build in the first place. I mean, it was, it was absurd, but, so, you know, uh, these cases yield absurd results. Right, I mean, I so you, also you, might be, you might be a bad lawyer, it seems to me, to say go, to, go all the way to trial and, and uh, plead entrapment. Yeah, I was just going to add that most of these cases will end up in plea agreements, and the stakes are incredibly high. One in ten of the cases that we looked at resulted in life sentences, and a number of them uh, do result in sentences of 15 years or more. Uh, a significant number of those cases involve solitary confinement. So for, you know, if I was <coughs> advising an individual, I would have to think honestly about whether or not it makes sense to go to trial. Yeah. And there's this element of predisposition entrapment as part of the test, right? And it's almost as if the fact that you did what you did satisfies the predisposition. Right. I mean, well, the, the fact we, that you watched videos of people doing yeah. those things. Um, okay. Well, uh, one more question before we go to the audience. Okay, yeah, go ahead. I'll Wanda. set you up for one, John. Don't worry. Okay. Um, no, I want to add something to this. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, they, uh, one, of the, one of the arguments is, and was using the Cromartie case, the Newberg case, and the, the judge actually mentioned it, the government protests that Cromartie might have succumbed to the blandishments of some real terrorist at some specified time in the future. That's a, that's a pretty good argument um, in the sense that uh, the argument is this guy's prone to violence and somehow an al-Qaeda type will come around and find him and they'll, they'll go forward. Uh, she does say that um, I suspect that real terrorists would not have bothered with uh, Cromartie because uh, he was so utterly inept. Uh, only the government could have made a terrorist out of Mr. Cromartie, whose buffoonery is positively Shakespearean in scope. Um, the, uh, but, uh, so she sort of dismisses it, but the basic argument is fairly good. It's sensible. You know, they, these guys prone to it, and then Al-Qaeda will find them and so forth. Uh, Trevor Aronson, in this book called The Terror Factory, uh, argues that that simply never happened. And there's nothing like it, and my, my, my investigations uh, say the same thing. There's never been anybody who an al-Qaeda type in this country sort of came to uh, and sort of recruited. Instead of what you get is somebody like Cromartie, and then they sort of find their friends and so forth. Uh, so it's basically a bogus, um, um, uh, there basically is no evidence that's happened in the United States. Okay, one more question for me before we uh, go to the audience. Uh, the, the, um, the question uh, is, is sort of what else do we do about it? But I mean, I'll add to it and just say, you know, wasn't it inevitable, given the massive hunt we've undertaken uh, for terrorists since 9-11, that we would find some, even if they weren't there? So, uh, you know, we have 104 joint terrorism task forces. We have roughly 80 fusion centers. We have policing at three levels of government. We have ambitious federal informants. We have this small army of 15,000 informants, some portion of which we don't know are 
looking for terrorists. Uh, we have intelligence agencies, the Department of Homeland Security. We have uh, the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security exhorting all of us to be vigilant all the time for if we see something to say something. So uh, wasn't it inevitable that we'd sort of generate uh, cases, even if they weren't that great, and, and what do we do about it? I mean, other than saying to the FBI, stop doing it this way, I mean, wh what's the solution? Is it U.S. attorneys? Is it changing the law on entrapment? What do we, how do we combat it if we don't like it? We can go in any order. Yeah, well, I think it's, uh, it may be hopeless. <laughs> sort of on an optimistic note here. Uh, you got this self-perpetuating sort of situation. Um, and they keep their, their fusion centers and their, the JTTS, Joint Terrorism T Task Forces, all over the country. And they've got to do something, so they're constantly looking for things uh, to do. Um, and uh, it, uh, they, as far as I can see, judging from what we've come to light and some suspicion about things that haven't come to light but might be there, the amount they've had to do is incredibly small. Uh, and they keep looking and keep looking. Dana Priest has written about this and Bill Arkin in their book. But let me give you one statistic from that. It'll give you some idea of the problem. Uh, they, they did a book called uh, Top Secret America about, um, about 2011, I think it was. Um, and uh, in the book, they give a whole bunch of statistics in the whole book. Every page is sort of jaw-dropping when you look at it. But one statistic that really works very nicely, they said that the United States has created or refurbished uh, 273 uh, counterterrorism organizations in the country, 273. Now, the total number of terrorists they picked up, they're trying to do damage within the United States, is about 100. So that means they've created two or three counterterrorism organizations for every single terrorist they've caught or found in one way or the other since 9-11, give you some sense of the scope. And these people have to keep justifying their payroll and will keep doing it. It's very similar, actually, what happened in the Cold War with the uh, domestic communists. Even though people weren't paying attention to it anymore by the 60s and 70s, uh, the FBI was in there opening cases and opening cases and opening cases. Uh, and it just sort of incredibly self-perpetuating. Uh, and, uh, and even though it had been wildly unproductive. I mean, I think it's, it's worth bearing, bearing in mind how we got to this mess in the first place, which, which Maureen referred to briefly, but it, it, it's worth circling back because it really is sort of the fruition of the, the Eisenhower prediction about bewaring the uh, military-industrial complex. You know, after 9-11, the FBI was indeed threatened with, with being broken up in, in two various factions, and it was a terrifying moment for those who believe, defended the, the size of the bureaucracy that, that is the FBI. And they, they changed their philosophy into something that's called left of boom. I don't know if you, left of boom, boom is like the moment when the bomb goes off, right? And then on a timeline, right of boom is, is after the bomb goes off. And the FBI has been great at that. After there's a murder, after there's an attack, after there's a bank robbery, nobody in the world is better than the FBI at figuring out, looking at the forensic evidence, interviewing witnesses, combing, no detail is too small, and figuring out who, who done it. And they're great at that. But after 9-11, they decided they need to get, in, get more into the business of left of boom, which is who is going to commit a crime? Who, who, who might be thinking about committing a crime? Who might be susceptible to being recruited? And they headed down that road, um, and they took on a great number of informants who were being overseen by increasingly junior people. Um, and so there's, there's a, it's, it's become a structural problem within the FBI, adding to which they have... Um, 
an internal awareness that they need to self-perpetuate. Um, I, I interviewed in the film Tom Fuentes. It's not shown here, but uh, he was the former assistant director of the Bureau. And he, he said to me, you know, he said, we can't go to Congress and say that we're doing great on the war on terror. They'll cut our budget in half. He said, this is keep fear alive. Keep it alive. And the FBI is conscious of that. Um, and so I, I agree with John that it's, it's how do you change it? I'm not sure, but you need to know, you need, need to know how we got here. And I think that is, that is the path that led us to this, this frustrating impasse. Yeah. Can I just add that, uh, you know, this is about a national security state that is growing, as, as everybody else has said, a surveillance state that is growing in this country, a money-making business opportunity for the federal government and for private contractors who are part of it. And so we should see reform in this area as part of reform of surveillance of the surveillance and national security state more broadly. Uh, that means that when we talk about how to address these issues, I mean, we want congressional oversight. We want the FBI to be more careful. Uh, we want there to be more uh, internal hand-wringing at the FBI about whether or not they should actually be indicting these individuals, and they should be assessing what the ultimate costs are. I went into these communities after these cases were prosecuted. It scared the daylights out of people who lived in those communities because they believed that the teenagers were being targeted by the FBI as uh, people who the FBI wanted to tout as terrorists. Uh, people are afraid that informants are in their elementary schools and that their fears are not unfounded. Informants are uh, asking people, uh, teenagers, you know, do you want a cell phone? That's great. You can become an informant for us. Uh, there, it is the case that uh, the FBI and local police have a, a huge presence in American Muslim communities all over the country, and in a lot of ways that's counterproductive. It's counterproductive because when you create fear in these communities that they're being targeted by law enforcement, you're actually creating alienation. I grew up in this country as an American Muslim. It's a completely different situation in this country uh, than it is in the UK and in European countries where the, the Muslim communities in those countries are far more... Um, fragmented, far more separate and less integrated with the rest of society. And yet the United States imported policies from the UK especially and from other European countries that treated American, sorry, Muslim communities as a potential threat, as a potential breeding grounds for terrorism. That creates paranoia and fear within American Muslim communities that didn't have to exist before. So how do you change that? How do you get Congress to actually uh, conduct oversight or the FBI to think about those larger impacts on American Muslim communities, basically manufacturing a problem that didn't exist in nearly so uh, a great uh, uh, set of of worries uh, that was actually there. Uh, I think what the FBI has to do is, first of all, obviously, look at what they're causing in these communities, look if they're being counterproductive and targeting people, these teenagers in these communities all over the country. Uh, but they've also got to look at their broader set of policies and guidelines that changed after 9-11, uh, restrictions that were rolled back that were there for a reason in the 70s, uh, put in place uh, so that the FBI wouldn't go far beyond what it really should be doing, which is limiting its investigations to situations where there's reasonable, reasonable suspicion of criminal activity, not using informants in preliminary investigations, not doing assessments, which are basically um, fishing expeditions and communities. And we should also think about what the FBI is doing is not just impacting Muslim communities, not just impacting places like, the, uh, like Newburgh, but impacting all communities. Uh, we're also uh, very aware at Amnesty of the fact that the FBI, these joint terrorism task forces, um, have targeted groups of environmentalists, uh, groups of uh, activists who are working on anti-mass incarceration issues. A joint terrorism task force recently um, targeted a Black Lives Matters protest 
in the Midwest as a potential hotbed of terrorism. So everything that we see happen in these cases can spill over and will spill over and is spilling over into all kinds of uh, criminal justice uh, contexts. Okay, get 30 seconds. Okay, 30 okay. seconds. 15 oh. seconds? Uh, about 30. Um, yeah, they, 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 this is basically democracy in action because um, we've got a chapter in Chasing Ghosts about public opinion since 9-11 or since 2001. Um, and there's been almost no change in public opinion. The percentage of people who are worried that they might be killed by a terrorist is the same now as it was at the end of 2001. The percentage of people who think there's going to be another attack within the next, in the near future is the same as it was then. Uh, the people who say they feel safer is the same as it was then. Uh, the people who think we're winning the war on terror is basically the same. So despite the fact there's been no 9-11s or anything else, there's been almost no, from a political standpoint, you've still got this, this fear among the public, which another political opponent might be able to manipulate against you if you say some of the things we've been saying here. Uh, let's go to audience questions. Let's have uh, actual questions, not speeches. Let's try to keep them pithy. It's par partly my fault for running a little too late on the Q&A, and then hopefully the answers will also be, however eloquent, also uh, pithy. Uh, and please say who you are, your name and affiliation. Let's go to the gentleman right here first. Hi, Carl Golovin, jfkvigil.com. Um, I'll ask you, the, the first World Trade Center bombing, is it true, in fact, that the FBI actually provided the explosives that were used in, yeah, this is back in the early 90s, I guess it was. Okay, and... Uh, no, it was not true. It's not true? Okay, okay. next question. Go on. Well, I could just reference a book that I think points towards an interesting psychological, even spiritual perspective on the whole mindset. I'm a retired customs agent, worked undercover cases in Miami for many years. Rulers of Evil, subtitled Useful Knowledge About Governing Bodies, uh, author Frederick Tupper Saucy kind of traces the 500-year history of governmental thought during the Counter-Reformation and the notion that somehow the ends justify the mean, means and when government creates chaos, then people demand more government to manage the chaos, kind of a self-perpetuating process. Just highly recommend that book. Okay. Uh, Ma'am, in front. Thank you. My name is Li Yang. I think this type of informant or false witness is really happen everywhere, not just for terrorists, but for criminal justice system, as you say, democracy in action, as you say. I think it's really somebody try to victimize other people, so they create some false witness and then prosecute somebody or send them to somewhere to victimize the, the person or their family. So I just, my question is really, how do you help these people? Like you are helping the terrorists, how to identify the terrorist is really victimized. Now I'm thinking like in the normal sense, criminal justice system or civil, even civil actions, how do you help them? Because they try to say something and against the government or prosecutors or against some maybe car dealers who really rob your car but they want to victimize you, try to make your reputation is ruined or not be able to say something. So I just wonder for society's sake, how do you expand the way you reach out people so they can really speak up and you can really help them out to say this case is false. We have to prosecute rather than prosecute regular okay. citizens. Yeah, well, I'll just add a little bit to that if you want. Um, how is How are other crimes treated differently? So uh, to what extent, uh, 
do we uh, treat terrorism as a special law enforcement criminal justice system uh, separate and apart from other uh, types of crimes the FBI might be investigating? I, I answer her right. question as you will, too, but maybe that, too. I mean, I'll, I'll just say really briefly that uh, we have to give some consideration to the pressure that FBI agents are under all over the country and field offices all over the country. Uh, if they were to kind of catch and release, like, you know, find a person who, who says stuff online but just monitors that individual, in a sense, they're taking a risk, right? Because if that individual then acts on a, a plot or joins ISIS, uh, it, it happened under their watch. And so what needs to happen is that there's a direction from FBI headquarters and a protocol from FBI headquarters as to how to respond to some of these cases. Maybe some of the suggestions that some of the other uh, panelists mentioned. Uh, I don't think that there's the same imperative on FBI agents uh, to act uh, basically on a zero risk tolerance policy with regard to other kinds of cases. And there's also a lot of pres prosecutorial uh, discretion at play here. And one other thing I wanted to pick on really quickly was just what happens to the individuals who are defendants in these cases. I mentioned that a lot of them get really lengthy sentences. What that ends up meaning for the families is that, the, is that they're incredibly stigmatized in their communities. Uh, they're often, in, in a lot of cases, not supported by the communities at all. Uh, these are families where you know two or three sons could be taken away or one son could be taken away. Uh, and those families then, uh, you know, in some of these cases have had their wages garnished. Um, they are families that are end up being devastated by uh, these prosecutions and the decision to prosecute instead of try some kind of alternative form of supervision or alternative uh, that has been mentioned here. I just think to marry the uh, woman's question with, with, with Ben's, I think ultimately, you know, the First Amendment is our friend here. I think people need to be educated. The notion that the government has perpetuated that there is this lurking menace of terrorism that, that threatens us all, it simply does not stand up to the light of truth. And I think that needs to be repeated over and over again in the media. It needs to trickle up into the next presidential election. And once that myth is dispelled, you know, there are plenty of law enforcement issues to focus on in addition to that. There's no shortage of murders around the United States, no shortage of rapes and no shortage of robberies and identity theft. Plenty for the FBI to do. It, it, it distracts law enforcement from, from really more, more pragmatic and important ways to spend their time. Sure. Yeah, the, the, the crime, which it is comparable to, is the one I mentioned about the Secret Service bloviating uh, uh, about trying to kill the President of the United States, obviously an extremely serious crime, but they are not really effectively serious about it, and they can be, they can be scared straight in many respects, what the Secret Service has been, service has been doing. Um, so they're different in that respect. Also, what happens with uh, John Horgan at the University of Massachusetts has pointed out, there's very low recidivism rate for terrorists. They go to jail and they come out and they don't do it again for the most part, not in all cases, but uh, for the most part. Um, and whereas this recidivism rate for people who are caught in, you know, in drug crimes or in robbing banks is very high. Uh, so in, in some respect, you're dealing with a special kind of criminal, a kind of a, a, a weird criminal who basically has all these grandiose ideas, um, and, but very little capacity to carry them out, and it'll go away after a while. Uh, people, as he puts it, walk away from terrorism. They still think they may still hate the president, but they give up any idea of actually trying to kill him. They may still think that the United States, what's doing in Iraq or Afghanistan, is outrageous. Uh, but and that's a perfectly legitimate thing to, to uh, believe. Obviously, most Americans, in fact, do think it was a mistake. Uh, but they don't. Uh, they give up the idea of doing terrorism. So, in some respects, the, the, the issue is looking at terrorists as if they're some sort of diabolical mastermind sort of thing. And mostly, they're much more like James Cromarty. If you want to see them in action in a fiction film, I strongly recommend Four Lions, 
which is a British film by uh, Chris uh, Chris uh, Matthew Murray uh, Murphy no Chris. Um, Morris, uh, which basically is very funny, uh, but deals with four would-be terrorists, or five actually, in Britain. Um, and that's very much closer to the actual case, sort of bumbling halfwits for the most part. Uh, yeah, back there. We're going to try to work through. We have only a few minutes, so let's be punchy, everyone. I'll try. Uh, my name is Russ too. Green. Um, you guys have kind of been downplaying the risk of terrorism, but we're seeing now ISIS seems... Uh, far more capable than previous terrorist groups. I mean, they're controlling large amounts of territory in Syria, less now in Iraq, but now they're spreading into Tunisia, Lebanon, Yemen. Um, isn't there a risk that they're going to be sending some of their highly trained and skilled operatives in, back into the United States, sort of like the 9-11 attack? So maybe not American citizens, but people who aren't in America, um, sent from the Middle East and um, Therefore, isn't this still a significant risk? And then tying on to that point, um, FBI is a law enforcement organization, not an intelligence gathering organization, really. So maybe that's part of the problem, that they want to create criminal cases rather than just preventing attacks and accessing more information. Do you agree? If so, what should be done about it? Well, I just, uh, ISIS obviously is a threat, and it's, you know, largely we've been focusing on domestic acts of terror, but... Um, I think one of the lessons to take away from this is that the FBI is not winning any friends abroad with, with actions like this. Um, it, it's, the cases like Newburgh spread Islamophobia. They, they cement in the public mind the notion that mosques are hotbeds of terror. They're not. That, that Islam is, is, leads people to acts of terror inherently. It doesn't. Um, and, but ISIS, as we all know, is a sophisticated organization. They can, look, they can take a case like Newburgh and say to the people, look at America. They exploit you know, um, they take any opportunity to make Islam look bad. Um, so if, if, we, if you're right that Islam, ISIS poses a possible domestic threat, this is a lousy strategy for preventing it. Uh, yeah, and getting back to the ISIS itself, I think the threat there has been massively overblown in terms of its effect uh, elsewhere. ISIS actually broke off or was kicked out of al-Qaeda because they don't want to attack the West. They mainly want to establish a caliphate in the Middle East. So if you're in that area, you're in big trouble. Also, the foreign fighters is studied by Dan Byman and uh, Jer Jeremy Shapiro in the, at Brookings, which I strongly recommend dealing with returnees. And they find that most people, most of the guys who go to the Middle East and then come back basically never do anything again at all. Uh, most of them don't return, however, um, because they go there and they're killed. Uh, if, uh, they're, they're, there's some danger that they could be a mole. And so consequently, ISIS and other groups have them decide have them to be suicide bombers. Uh, also, if you look at the ISIS videos, what they're doing is burning their passports. The whole point of they're, they're, they're surrendering themselves to ISIS in the area. They, they, so the ability to go back is obviously very small. Uh, so the, uh, and we've been hearing this now for several months about how all these ISIS guys are going to come back in Europe in particular and to a lesser extent the United States and, and Australia as well. And virtually none of that has happened. So it may be time to really look at that very carefully. It doesn't seem to be a real threat to us, though uh, what they're doing uh, in the Middle East itself is obviously horrific and is a different issue. I mean, I, you know, another answer which I'm not supposed to be giving is, uh, well, go find them then, but don't, you know, manufacture plots in New York with idiots. Uh, that's just a waste of time from finding the scary ISIS guys. But uh, one, uh, sir, yep, we'll, we'll get a couple more before we leave. Sure. Thank you. Todd Wiggins, good afternoon. I was wondering if any of you wanted to comment on the special yesterday on 60 Minutes having to do with cyber terrorism 
and whether that factors into this. I didn't hear you speak about that in general. And secondly, which um, candidate so far do you think would be in the best position to combat some of the concerns that, that you've expressed? Let's get in, we'll add another question right here and uh, we'll get both these gentlemen's questions in the front. We'll go uh, just one and then another question and then we'll let people answer all three. And I'll get to you after that. Uh, my name is Yoshika, the security consultant, Japanese. Japanese security consultant. I'm sorry, uh, my English capability is a little. And uh, my question is different of today's, event, uh, today's tema. But uh, rising risks to happening uh, terrorism in Japan, I have to request this question for you. Uh, if uh, anyone of yours uh, know, please teach me uh, how are uh, U.S. and Japanese government sharing the information or data about terrorists to counter terrorism? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. My question is about the role of local police who may not be under any kind of uh, congressional oversight, haven't, like the FBI, gone through COINTELPRO, so they don't have the same uh, regulatory structure. They, they don't, may not have the same guidance for their relationship with informants and then how the FBI would let uh, pick up those same informants. I saw there was sort of a role for the New York City police in this. Yes. And so I'm, and I'm thinking that they're under a much different jurisdiction than the FBI, which is under federal jurisdiction and may have more uh, regulations. So uh, my question is about how that lack of local, uh, how the local police have kind of now played this role. And it's also a matter of how there's very little oversight within the local jurisdictions, like democracies sort of doesn't uh, control any more local police. Let's just get the one last question, then we'll answer them all and uh, go to lunch. So uh, that, get his question right there. Thank you. <coughs> My name is Hermes Levion from OWS. I just would like to, for you all, both guys to the panel to comment on this, on my own comment. I'm a member of the Occupy Wall Street, and uh, we know that uh, the, there are the, the, the most dangerous threat is not seen because this country is occupied. Why we don't see it? our low level of perceptions. The army that are here actually do many things that neither FBI nor CIA can see, but some citizens see it. They use the technique of suggestion to make the leaders, the Congress, the White House, extra do things that goes down in the sense of their plan. They use something as crazy as constriction as a weapon. Uh, to make all of this very clear, one might need more than five hours of conference, so it's not possible here. But what will be your comment on this time, this, this kind of terrorist that is real? Okay, so we have cyber terrorism, 60 minutes, who's the best candidate? Uh, information uh, sharing the issue of uh, local police and uh, this uh, occupation and perception question, which we'll answer bang, bang, bang. Irene, you have anything? or? So I'm, I didn't catch the whole, whole question on information sharing, uh, but I will just say that information sharing with foreign governments, the U.S. information sharing with foreign governments is actually a major concern for us in an age of NSA surveillance and global surveillance of millions of people around the world. Uh, the U.S. government is collecting all of that data and has uh, arrangements to share information with all kinds of governments, including governments like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the UAE, 
uh, that have records of uh, retaliating against human rights defenders and activists. So we're really concerned about how U.S. surveillance could end up uh, creating or facilitating human rights abuses that are being committed by other countries against their citizens. Uh, I won't comment on the U.S. elections question because Amnesty International is not a, a partisan organization. Uh, but I will say that uh, we're at a really tremendous point in time uh, for the movement to ask critical questions about national security and national security rationales. I think we've helped quite a lot by Edward Stone's revelations because people now realize that um, fear and justifications in the name of national security for all kinds of abuses are so pervasive that we actually have um, everybody in this country probably under one form of surveillance or another, either by the NSA or by their local police, uh, and under surveillance not because of reasonable suspicion of criminal activity, but because everyone is suspicious. Uh, everyone is a potential threat, in the words of the FBI director who is justifying his $8.4 million budget. Local police? Local police in particular caught, caught my attention, because um, as a former prosecutor, um, you know, the FBI has a spotty record with dealing with local police and working with them. There's, there's nothing like having people on the ground who know the community. Um, and uh, in the case of New York City, it's, it's a unique uh, partnership because 9-11 took place there. And so it's not as good an example as it is around the country. But what I think really needs to happen is, along with local police, is local communities. Um, and, and just to return to uh, an issue that was raised before, is if we don't win the trust of people on the ground, we will end up needing more and more surveillance. It will feel more and more like a, 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 a state that Occupy Wall Street feels is, you know, the gentleman with the question talked about sort of uh, the, an army of people looking over your shoulders. The FBI, unfortunately, hasn't pursued um, a policy which I think they should, which was to engage people on the ground, engage mosques, engage the, the Muslim community, and then you won't need local law enforcement. You won't need to have um, a mass, massive surveillance because you will have eyes and ears ready to help you, but you have to win their trust, and that hasn't been done yet. Okay, just quickly on cyber terrorism, um, uh, cyber security, Ben Friedman and I have done a website which is available through Cato called the Cyber Skeptics and mostly arguing that from a security standpoint, an international security standpoint or terrorism standpoint, uh, cyber seems to be pretty uh, small potatoes. However, there's tons of money out there if you want to study it. Uh, so uh, go for it. I mean, if you're a bank, there's a problem. They, uh, people have been trying to rob banks forever, and now they're using cyber. But that's a different issue, the business, business issue. Uh, in terms of NYPD, et cetera, we got a chapter in the book actually changing go uh, chasing ghosts on NYPD. And they spend tons of money on terrorism, hardly any of their own. Almost all the money they get is coming from taxpayers outside of the city of New York. Um, so it's really ingenious and brilliant, you know. That's what mayors are supposed to do is go the federal government, and they've done it big time with the terrorism thing, and they constantly talk about 9-11 about every third sentence, as you can well imagine. Um, so far, they spent this money, and it's amazing how little has come of it. For example, they have the, if you see something, say something, which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to promote, this thing you call in. They've got thousands, tens of thousands of calls in. Not one has led to a terrorism arrest. They've been going, they've been going through mosques, the mosque crawlers, they call them, uh, and have come up with virtually nothing. They even have people overseas in like Lyon um, and, and in, uh, in Tel Aviv and Singapore and so forth to try to find out if there's any terrorists over there who are going to harm New York City. So far, they've come up with absolutely zero. And the, the impact of the, the uh, reputation, judging from the CIA, is that it's a, it's, it's a complete waste of money and so forth. But they continue to keep doing it. In terms of their actual jurisdictional thing, uh, the, the New York is different from the federal government in that a conspiracy can be just one guy and an, an informant. 
federally, a conspiracy has to be at least two guys and an informant. Uh, so there are a couple of cases in which they, they use that, um, and they seem to have, they've used informants themselves. The cases were so trivial that even the FBI didn't want to be part of it. NYPD went ahead and got a few guys in jail, three of them to be exact. Uh, but it was basically, um, they basically followed the same procedures as the, as the, uh, as the um, federal government. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming. We have lunch for you uh, upstairs. Uh, uh, just go up the spiral stairs and go straight ahead. There's lunch. Uh, the bathrooms are up there as well. And uh, it, it remains for us only to thank our uh, panelists for being here and uh, speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you.